Well, good morning. We, uh, we are finishing up a series uh, this morning. We, we have spent the last several weeks looking at the values of Central, the top seven values of Central, the things that, that we view as important, the way we view the world, the way that we view our church, our church's position in the world, the way we make decisions. These are our values, and we've talked about things like Scripture foundation, fight for the hearts of the next generation, embrace your mission field. We believe we're better together. Nobody's meant to live the Christian life alone. Even the lone ranger had Tonto. Uh, you know, uh, we, we want to create safe places, whether they are physical spaces as well as emotional and spiritual places. And we want to be generous in all things, our time, talent, and treasure. We want to be a generous people. Well, This morning, we are looking at the last one. We're finishing it up, number seven, and that value is intentional discipleship. We believe that we don't become more like Jesus by accident. Rather, we deliberately choose to practice the habits of Jesus, becoming disciples who make disciples. Intentional discipleship. We're going to look at that in more detail this morning. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 28. You can turn there. And as you're turning, let's, let's have confession time here. Here's my confession to you. I skipped my college graduation. It was, you know, December of 2005, and I skipped it. On the day of my graduation, I had something else on the calendar. Uh, you might be wondering, what in the world could be more important than your college graduation on your calendar. Uh, Well, I got married that day, and so that that wins. I I got married that day, and so my thought for you, my question for you to think through, because I didn't show up to my college graduation, does that mean that I didn't graduate? Yes. (laughs) Jorge says yes, end of sermon. (laughs) <laughs> no is the answer <laughs> you, you know this and I learned something this week and, and you all probably already knew it uh, and I'm the only one I'm, I'm the one that didn't know this uh, if you've ever been to a graduation and we're coming up on graduation season here in May and there's you know high school graduation and college graduation and kindergarten and, and fifth grade and second grade and all sorts of graduations uh, but you'll go, you'll go to a graduation, and they'll refer to it as like a commencement, right? And I always thought, well, that's just a fancy way of saying graduation. Uh, and then this week, I learned something that, that graduation and commencement are two different things. When someone has graduated, what you're saying is that person has completed everything they needed to complete in order to earn that degree. They, they've done all the work. They've graduated, Commencement is the ceremony that celebrates that graduation. So no, I, I didn't lose my opportunity to graduate because I didn't go to commencement. I already graduated. I finished all the work. Commencement is the ceremony. And I thought about that word commencement. We use it in, in terms of graduation, and if you didn't know better, you would think that word means concluding or, or finishing. So it's the end. You finished your schoolwork, and now... You are at the commencement ceremony, it's the end. But that word commencement doesn't mean end, does it? If I'm 
commencing something, I'm beginning that thing. So we call our, our graduation, the end of a degree, we call it the beginning of something, not the end. The focus is on, on what's ahead, the, the life that's to come. Well, we're in Matthew chapter 28, and, and as I look at this story that we're going to look at, uh, it kind of looks like a commencement ceremony where Jesus gives a commencement speech. And we're going to look at verses 16 through 20, uh, but we're going to begin just in verse 16, and in verse 16 is where we find the gathering of the disciples. So look with me in the Bible, Matthew chapter 28, verse 16, Matthew writes, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. So in verse 16, the disciples gather. There's a sad note there at the beginning. It's the eleven disciples, not the twelve. Every other time it's been twelve disciples, but now it's eleven. And the reason that it's eleven is because Judas has betrayed Jesus at this point in the story. And that led to Jesus' arrest and execution. So there are no longer 12, there are 11, and it says that they went to Galilee. Why did they go to Galilee? Well, uh, this is a significant place. Galilee is is a significant place. On the night that Jesus was arrested, his disciples fled. They were afraid that they were going to be arrested too, and they would have the same fate, and so they scattered, escaped, they they hid themselves, and and later that, that evening, or Jesus is crucified, and on Sunday morning, some women go to his tomb. And when they get to the tomb, the stone is rolled away, and Jesus' body isn't there. And that's surprising to them. They, they, they see an angel. What an amazing thing to see an angel, and the angel declares to them, he is not here, he has risen. And what an amazing thing to be told. You went to go visit the body of your master and he's not there, but an angel tells you that he has risen. And even more amazing, the Lord Jesus himself shows up and speaks to them and he says, greetings. Hello, he says to them. And then, and then he gives them some directions. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. So the reason the disciples went to Galilee is because Jesus told the women to tell them. The women who went to the tomb, not the disciples who were afraid and had scattered the women, they go and tell the disciples, hey, Jesus is alive, and he says go to Galilee. Why did Jesus pick Galilee? Well, he picked Galilee, that's where he's from, that's where his ministry began, that's where he trained his disciples, was in Galilee in the, in the north. So they were in Jerusalem in the south where Jesus ha- had been crucified. And he says, go back up north, go back where we're from, go back to the place where I called you because that's where I'm going to commission you. Go to Galilee. Go, go to Galilee to the mountain, it says in verse 16. There's, there's a mountain involved. It doesn't tell us which mountain is involved, but it says to go to the mountain. Well, we don't know the mountain, but we know that mountains in the Bible are significant. We could think about mountains in the Old Testament. You know, the Garden of Eden was located on a mountain. Moses met with the Lord on a mountain. When when the Lord spoke to him through the burning bush, that was on a mountain. 
The Lord commissioned him to go into Egypt and to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea and toward the Promised Land. Along the way to the Promised Land, they stop at a mountain, Mount Sinai, where the Lord speaks to Moses, speaks to the people, and and gives them the law, the Ten Commandments. That was a mountain. And then Moses wanders with the people for 40 years through, through the desert. On the way to the promised land, Moses was not allowed to enter, but the Lord let him see the promised land from a mountain, Mount Nebo. So in the Old Testament, those are just some examples, even just from the life of Moses, where mountains are a significant place. It's a place where you hear from the Lord. Well, then we get to Matthew's gospel in the New Testament, and mountains are also significant there. We could think of some things. You have in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, you have the Sermon on the Mount. That's short for mountain. On a mountain where he delivers this sermon. And then in Matthew chapter 17, Jesus takes three disciples up with him on this mountain, and he is transfigured before their eyes, and and he has a conversation with Moses and Elijah. What an amazing thing that happens on a mountain. Well, here in Matthew 28, something significant must be about to happen because Jesus says, let's meet at the mountain. They're gonna hear from the Lord. So Jesus has his disciples gathered. In verse 17, we get their reaction. Look at verse 17. When they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. So there are two reactions there. It says that they worshiped. They worshiped. That is an appropriate reaction. When you see the risen Christ to worship, that, that is the way you ought to respond. It's the way the women responded in verse 9. When they see the Lord Jesus, it says that they went and they grabbed his feet and they worshiped. And that's what these disciples are doing. They're worshiping. That's appropriate. But then the second part of that in verse 17 seems a little off to me. They worshiped. And then it says, but some doubted. Some doubted. That, that seems hard. Who, who doubted? Who, who were the some? What were they doubting? What, what, does this, what does this mean? Some think that this means that, that some, uh, some worshipped, some of the 11 worshipped, and some of the 11 doubted. But they weren't doing both. Some think that this must mean that the 11 were worshipping uh, but, but there were others there, and maybe the others were the ones who were doubting. I don't think either of those is accurate. I think what's being told here is that the 11 worshipped, but some of those 11 who had worshipped also doubted. And I'm not sure what that means, and, and I look at this word doubt, and, and come to find out this word doubt only shows up one other time in the Bible, in the original language, only one other time, and it's in Matthew's Gospel. And it's in Matthew chapter 14. And you probably know that story. In Matthew chapter 14, the disciples are on a, on a boat and Jesus decides he's gonna meet them. Not on the other side, he's just gonna meet them and he walks on the water and the disciples are afraid. And Jesus says, don't be afraid, it's me. And Peter does this bold thing, I don't have the guts to do. He goes, if it's really you, tell me to walk on the water <laughs> and, and Jesus says to him, come. So Peter gets out of the boat, 
and starts walking on the water to Jesus. And then listen to what Matthew 14 says. But when Peter saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? Those are the only two places that that Greek word shows up in the Bible. Those two places. And even more interesting, you have in in, uh, chapter 28, you have the disciples who are worshiping, but some doubted. And then in chapter 14 here, you have Peter, why did you doubt? And then verse 32, when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshiped Jesus, saying, truly you are the Son of God. Peter was the one who was doubting. Peter got in the boat, and the ones in the boat worshiped. So there in Matthew 14, you have a scenario where there is someone who is worshiping and doubting, and then you get to Matthew chapter 28 at the end, and you have the same scenario. Some are worshiping, and some of those who are worshiping are doubting. I think there's, there's some information in Matthew 14 that helps us, this idea of doubt. Maybe doubt isn't the best English word for that Greek word. It's probably more like hesitate. Some hesitated. It's, it's connected to this idea, you of little faith. Not you of no faith, you of little faith. There's some hesitancy there. It's not like some of the disciples were like, I don't know if that's the risen Jesus or not. I'm skeptical. That's not what's going on there. What's going on there is some of them are, are tentative. They're, they're seeing the wind and the waves, and, and they're not sure, and they're saying, Lord, save me. It's, it's this little faith, and I want you to notice Jesus' reaction to those with little faith. You know, I know there are probably people in this room, and you would describe your faith in Jesus as little faith. I have a real hard time with this. I, yes, I know who Jesus is, but man, the things I'm going through in my life, I have little faith. Well, the way Jesus responds in Matthew chapter 14 and Matthew chapter 28 to little faith, what he does not do is depart from me, you of little faith. What does he do? Lord, save me. And he reaches out his hand and he grabs that person with little faith. What does he do in Matthew chapter 28? Some have little faith. How does he respond to those with little faith? He commissions them anyway. He commissions them Anyway, they worshiped, but some were hesitant. And then in verses 18 through 20, we have the commission to the disciples. They've gathered, they've reacted, and now Jesus is going to commission them. In verse 18, Jesus makes a claim. Jesus came to them and he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That is an audacious statement. That's a big thing to say. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. C.S. Lewis famously argued that it's unacceptable for you to say, well, Jesus isn't God, but he is a good teacher and a good man. We should seek to follow his example. C.S. Lewis says that is an unacceptable position to hold. Because of statements like this, 
all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me? If that's not true, with a statement like that, Jesus is either a crazy person and should be pitied, or he's a liar and despicable, or he is who he says he is and has the right to make sweeping claims over the entire earth. It's one of those three. You don't get to find another spot. He says, all authority is mine. Why, why would he make this claim about himself? Where does this come from? Well, it's because Jesus knows the Bible really well. He's making this claim out of Daniel chapter 7. It's a famous passage in the scriptures. Dan, Daniel chapter 7, you know, the number one way that Jesus referred to himself in the, in the Bible is he would call himself the son of man. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, that he calls himself the son of man. Did he just make that up or where did it come from? That actually comes from the Bible, Daniel chapter seven. So Daniel is a prophet and, the, and part of his book is him speaking these visions that he had. He, he saw some things and they, they, uh, they're images of kind of the truth. And so in Daniel chapter seven, Daniel gets this vision of four beasts and these four beasts represent empires that are to come, empires of the world that are to come, and, and he speaks of their rising and their falling. And then after he has that vision, he gets a vision of the throne room of God. So, so earthly thrones and then the throne room of God. Listen to what Daniel sees. He says, as I looked, thrones were placed, and the ancient of days took his seat. That's a way of speaking of God. The ancient of days took his seat his clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were open. So he has this vision of the Ancient of Days sitting on the throne, but if you noticed earlier in verse nine, there were more than one throne. So he has another vision down in verse 13. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him, to the son of man, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And then Jesus shows up in the gospel and says, I'm the son of man. I'm the one who in Daniel's vision received dominion from the Ancient of Days. One of those thrones in that vision was mine. And then we get to the end of Matthew, and Jesus says, oh yeah, also, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Because he says, I am the son of man. And the Ancient of Days, my Father has given me that dominion over all things. He is the King. 
What an audacious statement to make. He claims to be eternal. He claims to rule over all things forever, that there is not anything, anywhere, over which he does not rule. He is the king. That is a crazy thing to say, unless it's true. And Jesus validates his own statement. How how did he validate his own statement? Because a few days before he said that, he was a corpse and a tomb. And he's risen from the dead, and he says, okay, now you know all authority has been given to me. He is Lord over all things, and he alone has the right to make sweeping claims over our lives, over your life. He has that authority. And that means that his commands are not suggestions. His commands are not merely good ideas. They are commands from the only one who can give authoritative commands. Well, that's the claim that he makes about himself, and it's the grounds for the command that he's about to give. Look in verse 19 where we have this commission. Jesus says, go therefore... Therefore, based on the claim I just made, go therefore and make disciples. Go, that's a command. But it's attached to the main command, make disciples. The Lord over all things, the Son of Man who's received dominion from the Ancient of Days, has given a command. Go and make disciples. Disciple is not a word we really use that often, except in like a religious context. But that word disciple in in the Greek language comes from uh, another word that means to learn. Jesus says, go make learners. Go make learners. Well, where should these learners, where should these disciples come from? He says there in verse 19, Make disciples of all nations. All authority has been given to Jesus, so it makes sense that the scope of this command covers all nations. And that statement, all nations, which people are left out? None. There are people in our world, they they live somewhere else in the world, and And there are are some people groups who have never heard the name Jesus. There are some people groups in our world who do not have a Bible translated into their language. Jesus means them. All nations. At Central, one of our values is to embrace your mission field. It may be that God is calling you to go to the other side of the world, to leave your home and go to the other side of the world to share the gospel with people who don't know the name Jesus. There are people, there are families from our church that have done that. They have given up everything here and they've gone to the other side of the world to give the gospel to those who so desperately need it. 
And that's the call on their lives. But God hasn't called everyone to go to the other side of the world. Your mission might not be on the other side of the world. Your mission might actually be on the other side of the street. The call to go doesn't necessarily mean you should go get on an airplane because you can walk across the street. Whatever your mission is, you should embrace it. Jesus says, make disciples of all nations. That includes this one. Make disciples, make learners of all nations. Well, what does he mean, disciple? In what way do we do this? He, he gives us two ways to do this, two parts to it. In verse 19, he says, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We should baptize them. Now, the word baptize, once again, is one of those words. You hear it in the church all the time, but what does it mean? It's actually not an English word. It's an English version of a Greek word. And, and that word means to dunk, to immerse, to put them under the water. Jesus' command is to dunk people. That's, that's the command. Alan's, Alan's ears perked up. He's ready for VBS. Jesus' command is to baptize people. Baptism, it presupposes that you've shared the gospel with them and they have respond, responded affirmatively. They, they want to trust in Jesus and so you baptize them. When we read the New Testament, we can look in the book of Acts, we can see uh, that, that the only people that are baptized are people that have trusted in Jesus. And so we baptize people after their profession of faith. Uh, we call that a believer's baptism. Believer's baptism is an act of obedience because Jesus has commanded it. He is king and he has said, be baptized. It's an act of obedience. It's an outward response to an inward heart disposition. So the point isn't just to go dunk as many people as you can. The point is to share the gospel and in hearing the gospel, the Lord transforms their hearts and they wanna follow after Jesus and they respond in baptism to reveal what's going on in their hearts. It's an outward response to an inward heart disposition. You're baptized in the name of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's not a magic incantation. What you're saying is, I identify with this triune God. He is my God. That is the one I, I follow. I'm putting on that t-shirt. That, that's what you're doing. You're identifying with Jesus and it's public. It's a public declaration in front of other people. I am not ashamed. I want people to know I identify with Jesus no matter what it costs me. That, that is what baptism is. And Jesus commands that we make disciples by baptizing people from everywhere. And here's the second part, verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So baptism is the commencement. It's the beginning. But we have a whole life to learn and to grow. Those of us who have little faith, our faith needs growing. And so Jesus' command is to teach, to teach them. If we're supposed to teach, we're going to teach to make learners. If we're going to teach, what's the curriculum? He says there in verse 20, all that I have commanded you. 
The curriculum is Jesus's commands. And we could look at, in, in the Gospel of Matthew, we could see all the commands uh, of Jesus. We could look just in the Sermon on the Mount and see some of the things that Jesus has commanded. But what I want you to know is that uh, this reference to all that I have commanded you, it, it doesn't just entail what's in uh, the Gospel of Matthew. And it doesn't just entail what's in, in the Gospels, the stories of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. When we talk about the Bible, we'll call it the Bible, we'll call it the scriptures, but we'll also call it the word of God. So this whole book is what Jesus has commanded us. These are the words of our God. The pages of this book have the words of our God. These are the commands. Now, it's important for us to understand that, that the red letters in your Bible are not more important than the black letters in your Bible. The red letters are the ones, you know, your Bible might be the kind that puts Jesus' words in red so you can find them easier. But that doesn't make them more important because Jesus spoke them. We believe all of this is God's word, all of it. And so, so uh, Paul's words are just as valid and just as important as Jesus' words because they're in the word of God. All of it is. These are Jesus' commands. So, so the, the command here is to teach all that I have commanded you. In other words, it is the job of believers in Jesus to teach other people what the scripture says. That is our job. That is the curriculum. But not just to learn it for our own minds. Because otherwise we could read a different literary work and we could we could go from there it's not just to learn new things what does jesus say in verse 20 teach them to observe all that i commanded it's not enough just to know what he's commanded the command is is to to obey it to obey discipleship is following after jesus obeying his commands from a heart disposition that submits to the lordship of christ that's discipleship. We are to teach all the commands, the whole counsel of God. Well, the Gospel of Matthew ends with a promise. There at the end of verse 20, Jesus says, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I am with you. You might be tempted to be afraid in this task that I've given you, but I am am with you. God has a way of saying that to people in the scriptures at key moments. I know you're afraid. Don't worry. I'm with you. I think about uh, Moses. You remember this guy, Moses. He was supposed to lead the people of Israel. He was supposed to, to lead them out of Egypt to the promised land, but because of the people's unbelief, this generation of people, they weren't going to go. It was going to be their kids that got to go, and Moses himself was not allowed to go to the promised land. So, so Moses is nearing the end of his life. They're on the edge. They're on the border of the promised land, getting ready to go in. Moses can't, Moses can't go in. And he's got this new generation. And so he writes the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy, it's second law is what it means. He's writing to these people to remind them, remember to obey the Lord Remember the promise of blessing if you obey the Lord. Remember the promise of curse if you disobey the Lord. Remember, remember, remember. And then one of the things Moses does is, is he says, look, I've got a successor. His name is Joshua. He's gonna lead you into the land. 
and you guys are gonna go to war, and then Moses speaks to Joshua. Listen to what Moses says to him. Uh, Verse seven of Deuteronomy 31. Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. So Moses is about to leave the task to Joshua, and he says, Joshua, I know that this task of going into the land and and, and going to these wars and, and taking the land from these people, I know that it's scary, I know that it's a big job, but listen, do not be afraid. Be courageous. The Lord is with you. He will go before you, he will be with you. Well, then what happens? Moses dies, and now it's time for Joshua to lead this new generation into the land. They're gonna, they're gonna take the land, but Joshua is given to fear, and look in Joshua 1.9, the Lord speaks to Joshua, and he says, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Do not be afraid, Joshua. I know this is a big task, but I'm with you. So go. Go take the land, the Lord tells Joshua. We get to Matthew. We arrive at this mountain, and and Jesus and his disciples are gathered. And he says, I am with you to the end of the age. I am with you to the end of the age. This task that you have before you to go and make disciples, it it seems like a big task. Uh, Disciples of all nations, that that seems too big. But listen, I am with you. It's like what's happening in the text here is, is Jesus is saying, I'm like Moses. You guys are like Joshua. You know, the promised land that, that the people were going to go into, that for us, that's the ends of the earth. Not just this little land on the Mediterranean. It's the ends of the earth. You guys are Joshua. Now go take the land. I'm with you, but have I not commanded you? Go. You see, one of the top seven values of our church is intentional discipleship. Intentional discipleship. We want to be a people who become more like Jesus, a, a people who follow after Jesus, not just a people who, who learn the Bible up here. We want to be a people who learn the Bible up here, and it has practical implications for our lives. In other words, we obey what Jesus says. Intentional discipleship. We, we recognize that this doesn't happen by accident. Discipleship doesn't happen to you like you're some passive figure. We're actually more like the other way. We're sheep who wander. We, we, tend, we tend to go away from discipleship, not towards it. So we have to be intentional with our discipleship. We use this word deliberate. We have to be deliberate over and over. We have to make a conscious choice. We have to make a plan to practice the things that help us obey Jesus. On purpose, we choose to do it. We put it on the calendar. Well, what, what are some of those things? Well, we could list 100 things. What are the things that help us be more like Jesus? Bible reading, Bible study, 
Bible meditation, Bible memorization, prayer. Prayer is a hard one. I, I know for some of you, you should schedule your prayer time and, and you should call it an appointment. You should schedule it. Put it on your iCal and schedule it and say, I have an appointment. When somebody says, hey, can you come do this over here? You, you, all you have to say is, I've got an appointment. You might have to schedule your prayer time. Uh, church attendance is one. Church attendance is a discipleship issue. Sunday morning church is a Saturday night decision. A church att uh, attendance is a discipleship issue. But not just church attendance, church participation. Plugging in. That's discipleship. Another part of discipleship is being willing to tell others about Jesus. To tell others about the salvation that comes by faith in him alone. And maybe speaking the gospel to others is new to you or maybe you're really nervous about that one. One other part of discipleship can just be inviting. Can you invite others to church where they can hear about Jesus and meet Jesus's people. Maybe you can just invite them, become an inviter, or, or maybe walking with more mature believers or, or walking with less mature believers. These, these are issues of discipleship. We believe we don't become more like Jesus by accident. Rather, we deliberately choose to practice the habits of Jesus, becoming disciples who make disciples. Now, when we talk about the Christian life, we often use this language of walk. How's your walk? How's your Christian walk? Well, if, if that's so, if it's a walk, then here's my question for you. For each person in this room, teenager, adult, young adult, kid, listen. What is your next step? If the Christian life is a walk, then what is your next step in discipleship? What is it? Maybe some of you, you haven't even been baptized yet. That's the commencement, that's the beginning. But maybe you haven't been baptized with a believer's baptism yet, and that's the next step that you need to take. Our next one that we're, we're, gonna, we're gonna gather together for is April 30th, and you can go on our website and sign up, and we'll get you all the information on what you need there. But maybe that's the next step you need to take is believer's baptism, or, or maybe it's something like, I need to be a part of a group, and I don't really know where to start, but I know I need that. Or maybe, maybe you need a place to serve in the church and, and you know you've been needing to do that, but that's your next step that you need to take. Or maybe it's something simple like, I need to just read the Bible. I don't really read it. I need to read the Bible. Start slow. Read a chapter a day. Maybe it's Bible reading. Maybe it's Bible study. Maybe you need to put together a prayer plan. Maybe, maybe what you ought to do is you ought to find another believer in this church and you ought to say, hey, can we? Can we get together for like breakfast or coffee or something before work just once a week? And can we just talk about the scriptures? The curriculum is the word of God. We're gonna read the book of Matthew one chapter at a time and just talk about it. Maybe it's a more mature believer. Maybe it's a less mature believer. Maybe you don't even know if they're more mature or less mature, but you're just gonna get together and talk about the Bible together. You don't have to have all the answers or no. You can ask questions together, but just to get together and learn the scriptures Maybe that's the next step you need to take. Be bold and ask somebody, can we get together? Maybe your next step is, this is the easiest one out of all of them. Invite someone to Easter. There is no easier time to invite someone to church than for Easter Sunday. We have flyers out there. You don't even have to talk. You can be a weirdo and just hand them a piece of paper. 
whatever you need to do, but invite someone to Easter. The best way is to say, hand them a flyer and say, man, I, I don't know if you go to church or not, but man, I would love for you to come to Central with me for Easter, and we're gonna go at this time. Why don't you sit with me? I'll meet you in the parking lot. You can see, sit, sit right next to me. Maybe that's your next step. That's an easy one. Maybe that's your next step. What is your next step in your walk with Jesus? Jesus is the sovereign king. Jesus commissions his disciples to make disciples of all nations. He is the son of man. He has received all authority from the ancient of days. He has risen from the dead. He is the new Moses. You and me, we're the new Joshua's. And the land that we're supposed to go take is our community. It's our neighborhoods. It's the ends of the earth. So Jesus looks at us and he says, go take the land. Go take the land. I'll be with you, but have I not commanded you?